I want to start with some uh, preliminaries, uh, which in a way are quite important. Hope is a long familiar word. In other words, uh, we, we, we are immersed in the use of hope uh, uh, in all our daily language. I want to suggest, though, that when we think of hope, uh, what we should be thinking of is a social practice rather than a mental attitude. That's actually quite important for the way in which uh, I'm going to be trying to develop these reflections. We can notice someone has hope not by investigating their inner life, but by observing what they're doing. It's a way of acting as, a way, as well as a way of thinking and feeling. And uh, it's, uh, hope arises uh, in a form of life where there's difficulty. And hope is most pronounced when the difficulty is greatest. Uh, it's not a once-off event, it's a form of life. And so when you want to start thinking about hope, you have to shift your mind from thinking of a mental attitude to thinking perhaps of a person that embodies it. And in that sense, I suppose, one could say that you would think of someone like um, Nelson Mandela. There's a person of hope, there's somebody who embodies uh, what we're trying to think of in the course of these uh, reflections this evening. But I want to uh, turn to another person of hope much nearer home and begin with a few remarks on that person, and that is Father Tony Coote, uh, uh, who, who made quite an impact uh, on us with his, the latter part of his life. Father Tony Coote was a priest of the Dublin Diocese and he died on August the 28th this year of motor neuron disease. In his memoir, he tells of the early symptoms, sudden falls, no explanation, and then the visit to uh, a neurologist and the diagnosis, uh, motor neuron disease. And then he writes, uh, the consultant left me to get dressed, turning to put around to put my clothes back on, I fell flat on the floor. The consultant came back in. Oh, you poor man, she said, I suppose, knowing what lay ahead for him. So some weeks later, he began to think about a fundraising walk that would raise awareness about MND. And then afterwards, he continues, my right hand has begun to lose its power. Already my legs have lost theirs and I can no longer hold a spoon or a fork. And I now feel that I'm facing the greatest challenge of this illness because my voice is beginning to weaken. And so we come to the concluding paragraph of the memoir. It's time for me to literally practice what I preach. I feel now that I'm aboard a fast train with only one stop. I'm not in a mad hurry to disembark. I'm like everybody else. I only know this world and this life, but I see no meaning in this life ending in a grave. When the train stops, I'll step onto that platform with hope. He speaks of hope. His limbs wasted, his voice is silenced, his vision is dimmed, and soon there'll be no agency at all. He's setting out not knowing where he is going. 
man of hope. I just want to add one little thing before I move on. Hope has an, has an affinity with humility. He has no agency at all. I will step off that platform with hope. Uh, in 2015, Terry Eagleton wrote a very fine book called Hope Without Optimism. And the blistering first chapter of that book is called The Banality of Optimism. The Banality of Optimism. So hope must be distinguished from optimism. Optimism may be characterized as a firm conviction that things tend to turn out for the best. Always look on the bright side of life, more or less, is the optimist's motto. I suppose some of you at least will remember the use of that song in uh, The Life of Brian, Monty Python, and he has this ridiculous figure who is on the cross saying to his two companions, always, <laughs> and so on. Uh, one of the problems with optimism, which always looks on the bright side of life, is that it doesn't take the desolation of the world seriously enough. Uh, Eagleton writes, I think the quotation might be with you there, Theodore Adorno once observed that those thinkers who give us the sober, unvanished truth are of more service to humanity than the wide-eyed utopians. Putting it very simply, I think optimism puts moral realism at risk. And moral judgments will be made uh, 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 in the wake of that mistake that optimism draws us into. The next thing I want to say about optimism, still following fairly, fairly much along the lines of Terry Eagleton, is optimism as a worldview. Optimism as a worldview tends to be drawn to the idea of progress. This is the idea that history is climbing upward, ever towards a more advanced state. I mean, there's no doubt that there has been progress in the history of humanity. Some things have grown immeasurably better. What's at stake for the optimist, though, is not progress, but with a capital P, infinite progress. The view that history, under its own steam, can deliver the justice that humanity stands in need of. The optimist thinks that history is on our side. The optimism, optimist doesn't measure the desolation of the universe seriously enough. There, there are enough nuclear bombs hidden in various cannons everywhere throughout the world to wipe the whole thing out. Many of our ancestors were very nasty indeed, and so are many of our contemporaries. The news just a few weeks ago of 39 dead Vietnamese young people in a refrigerated trailer driven by an Irishman hired from an Irish haulage firm make uncomfortable reading for the optimist. 
Eagleton has a very interesting point, finally, uh, about optimism, which I want to recall. Eagleton says optimists are conservatives because their faith in a benign future is rooted in their trust in the soundness of the present. Uh, indeed, he says, optimism is a typical component of ruling class ideologies. I want to suggest in the wake of his prompt there that optimism is the ideology of those who, like us, have a privileged position in the affluent West. The problem with optimism is that it doesn't take the desolation of the world seriously enough. There are those very serious thinkers who regard the optimistic worldview as morally and politically corrupt and the greatest obstacle to political progress. One of these is the German-Jewish writer Walter Benjamin, and I want to consider his work for a little bit. Walter Benjamin was a Jewish-German writer who uh, committed suicide as he was fleeing from the Nazi regime in 1939, with uh, um, much of his great work ahead of him, no doubt. Benjamin regarded the belief that history was on our side as the last word in politically suicidal complacency. In 1921, Walter Benjamin brought, bought a painting by Paul Klee, and that's the picture of the painting up there. It was called Angelus Novus, and Benjamin came to call it the Angel of History. And when in 1933 he fled from the Nazis, he left this painting behind. But then in early 39, a few months before his suicide, still fleeing Nazi capture, he wrote the following, The Angel of History. A clay painting named Angelus Novus shows an angel looking as though he is about to move away from something he is fixedly contemplating. He's looking hard at something and he looks as if he's about to move away from it. His eyes are staring, his mouth is open, his wings are spread. This is how one pictures the angel of history. His face is turned towards the past. The angel would like to stay, awaken the dead, and make whole what has been smashed. But a storm is brewing from paradise. It has cut his wings with such violence that the angel can no longer close them. The storm irresistibly propels him into the future to which his back is turned, while the pile of debris before him grows skyward. The storm we call progress. Where we perceive a chain of events, he sees one single catastrophe that keeps piling wreckage upon wreckage and hurls it at his feet. 
the ideology of progress blows the angel backward into the future. The angel is unable to resist the force of this formidable fiction. And that is why the long catastrophe of history continues to roll forward. So the myth of progress strips history of the truth of its catastrophic character. That's really, in essence, Benjamin's uh, understanding. The myth of progress strips history of the truth of its catastrophic character. The angel of history caps captures the sense of history as a record of what is lost, abandoned, and beyond reclamation, the defeated. Benjamin sees no hope in secular history as such. Left to its own devices, that history will simply generate new wars, catastrophes, and barbarisms. History as such cannot be reformed. History is not on our side at all. And the belief that history was on our side is the last word in politically suicidal complacency. Benjamin does acknowledge discrete moments, messianic moments, that blow open the continuum of history. In these moments, men and women do strike out for justice and fellowship that brings new meaning into the story of the defeated they open up the past, not simply by giving us a different reading, but also by their actions. But this is a subplot, a secret code that runs against the grain of what might be called the central plot of history. That's Benjamin. I must say, when I pass famine graveyards, and in my own hometown there's both a famine graveyard and a famine memorial in Cork. Benjamin's angel of history comes to mind. They're the defeated. They're graveyards of the defeated one, and I sometimes think of Benjamin's angel of history hovering there. In a town which I grew up in was prosperous and part of an affluent West. One more thing, Eagleton, who writes very eloquently about Benjamin in that same book, says, this is, this is a, an important but interesting point. In Benjamin's view, the meaning of the past lies in the keeping of the present. It is we who can endow it with a definite form, not simply by choosing to read it in a certain way, but by virtue of our actions. Quoting Eagleton, it is up to us to determine whether, say, a child reared in 12th century Avignon belonged to a species destined to blow itself to bits. It is the present that holds the past in its keeping uh, uh, in, in this vision of things. To me, at least, there's a sobering wisdom in Benjamin's work. Quotation there for him. Only for the sake of the hopeless ones have we been given hope. In other words, it's not hope 
on this is for the sake of the hopeless ones, some of whom are in the famine graveyard in Mitchellstown. It's only for the sake of the hopeless ones that we've been given hope. I think before we leave Benjamin, it might be right to recall that among those standing in need of remembrance is Benjamin himself. At the end of his time as a victim of fascism, he seems to have considered his own situation to be beyond redemption in the present. It was only in the future that his, um, his uh, defeated self could be given meaning. Almost the last thing he writes is the following. We ask of those who come after us not gratitude for our victories, but remembrances of our defeats. This is a consolation the only consolation afforded to those who no longer have any hope of being consoled. That's Benjamin in a nutshell. The defeated. Remember our defeats, not our victories. That's the only consolation of those who have no hope of being consoled. Benjamin is a very powerful interlocutor for anyone thinking about hope. He stops you in your tracks and he sets the agenda actually in some ways, the angel of history. We only have hope uh, for those who are least, most hopeless. So Benjamin is a powerful interlocutor for anyone thinking about hope. But perhaps, and I want to now develop this, perhaps he has too little hope in history. That's going to be of considerable importance. Benjamin sees no hope in history. He sees no hope in secular history at all. Left to its own devices, it will simply repeat the catastrophes and the defeated uh, and the barbarisms it's not on our side. There's no evidence that history is on our side. Round and round we will go piling up the mould of wreckage that the angel sees. Uh, the angel who would like to stop and, and heal what is smashed but cannot because the storm of progress has such a powerful effect that it is driving the angel away from uh, uh, its ministry of trying to heal uh, what um, is defeated. So... For Benjamin, it's only a tiny consolation, constellation. I could have a constellation in the sky of bright stars. It's only discrete, not connected, well, connected, but not continuous moments that you find men and women have broken through the continuum of the disaster of history. But history itself, as it goes on, will not uh, produce anything but more catastrophe after catastrophe. 
But I want to suggest that powerful interlocutor that Benjamin B. for anyone thinking about hope, we may question, has he too little faith in history? Perhaps he is overreacting to the bourgeois notion of progress. I suppose all the time I want to be suggesting to myself and to you that precisely because we belong to the affluent West, precisely because we are enculturated into privileged positions, we are tempted towards the ideology of progress. It's, it, it's almost inevitable culturally that we would be but if you're following Benjamin, you're saying that's morally corrupt and politically disastrous. But perhaps Benjamin has too little faith in history. If you're listening to him, you could come to this conclusion, but it's not going to be easy uh, to move forward. By contrast with Benjamin, a Christian memory has some resources that are different or that point in a different direction. A Christian memory has a memory of John the Baptist. John the Baptist pointing to a person there and saying, this is the Lamb of God, there in front of you. He is taking away the sin of the world and the Joannine phrase is the sin of the world, not the sins of the world. That is to say, not just this or that episode of wickedness, but the ugly wound, the running sore that uh, is uh, right through the, the entire human narrative. And saying, this is the one who is taking away the sin of the world is uh, a way of countering Benjamin's perhaps too little faith in history. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, what we call the Apocalypse, there is a vision of a lamb standing amidst the ruin of history, looking as if it had been slain, looking at the ruins of history, all that Benjamin said about history, looking at the, the ruins of history, standing looking at the ruins of history, looking as if it had been slain. And then to great rejoicing, the Lamb comes forward to take the scroll of history from the one sitting on the throne, for it is said, he is the one who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. So the lamb is going to take the scroll of history and open its seals, standing looking at the ruins of history. This is a vision of a sudden illumination of a transfigured hope, a new kind of hope. Rising from the depths of doom, the ruin of history. When I say transfigured hope, 
I, and I mean in the sense of a hope whose inner meaning is changed. A hope whose inner meaning is changed. A hope that takes its meaning from a new source. To me, the French poet Charles Peggy is the supreme poet of this transfigured hope as Flannery O'Connor is the supreme chronicler of it. Just a word about Charles Begee, and then I want to introduce you to his extraordinary poem called The Portrait of the Mystery of Hope, The Gateway to the Mystery of Hope. Peggy, first of all, he's born in Orléans in France in 1873, and he's... Uh, 1873, yes, and he's one of the first French soldiers killed in 1914. He's a poet and philosopher, and he combines very strong socialist views uh, with very strong French views. Extraordinary French nationalism runs through his, uh, his work, and very strong, though slightly unorthodox, Christian views, very strong Christian views. So he marries these three strands into a deeply personal faith which he carried into this poem and later on into uh, action. Socialism and patriotism come, came into his life first and much later Christianity. And it was only after his reconversion to Christianity in 1908 that he began to write poetry. And this poem called the Portal of the Ministry of Hope is written at a time of great anguish for him. Put very simply, his great projects in life had collapsed. There had been this Dreyfus affair in France, and uh, Peggy is disgusted with the way in which the leading socialist figures didn't put themselves at risk, nor did the leading church figures put themselves at risk. And Peggy fell, felt that his project and the magazine he had founded uh, had been undermined, and, and they had undermined his home, home as well. It also seems to be the case that to culminate his disgrace, because all his projects are going down, he was consumed by an impossible love. So there was a, a, a love affair that was uh, undermining his home, uh, and making this a uh, time of profound despair for him. And now I want to turn to the poem, and I'll be reading it, but if you turn your page of notes, you have almost a transcript of it, not quite, uh, but something very close to it. And before I start, you, you have to grasp two things here. In the poem, God speaks. This is God's poem. And the second thing to note is, God is surprised by hope. God is, a, is, it comes to God as a surprise that there is hope. So here comes the poem now. The faith that I love best, says God, is hope. Faith doesn't surprise me. Charity, says God, that doesn't surprise me. 
But hope, says God, that is something that surprises me. Even me, that is surprising. That these poor children see how things are going and believe that tomorrow things will be better. That they see how things are going today and believe they will go better tomorrow morning. That is surprising and it's by far the greatest marvel of our grace. What surprises me, says God, is hope. And I can't get over it. The little hope that seems like nothing at all. The little girl hope. Immortal. So it's the little child of hope that he's going to talk about. What must my grace and the strength of my grace be so that this little hope, trembling with every wind, anxious at the slightest breath, be as constant, remain as faithful, as righteous, as pure and invincible, impossible to extinguish. And that is seven times more difficult. The key, the key I'm pulling back from the poem now, just making a comment, the key is that the hope which God speaks of, which surprises God, is God's life expressed as hope. Maybe putting it this way, God is astonished to find that his inner life is expressed as hope when it is expressed within the narrative, within the human narrative. When God's inner life is expressed in the human narrative, hope becomes its expression, and God is astonished at that. When God's inner life is projected, as you might project onto a wall, onto the ruins of history, it finds expression in the new transfigured form of hope. In the middle of this very long poem, uh, God considers the parable of the lost sheep in these lines. I think you have them. So this sheep was lost. So this sheep was dead. He caused the very heart of God to tremble with the shudder of worry and the shudder of hope, with the shudder of, an of anxiety, a mortal shudder. And so, and thus, and also, he, calls, he caused God's heart to tremble with the very shudder of hope. He introduced into God's heart the theological virtue of hope. It was when God goes after the lost sheep that God discovers hope as the form of God's inner life. That's what he's getting at there. In the French version, this poem is called uh, The Second of the Theological Virtues. So by theological virtue there, he means hope as expressing God's inner life. At the very end of the long poem, God speaks of being there on the day of the crucifixion as that day comes to its close. And you have the quotation there. Now, every man has the right to bury his own son. Every man on earth, if the great misfortune befalls him, 
not to have died before his son. And I alone, God, my hands tied by this adventure, I alone, Father at that moment, like so many fathers, I alone was unable to bury my son. It was then, O night, that you arrived. It was then, O night, that you came, and in a great shroud you buried the centurion and his Romans, the virgin and the holy women, and that mountain and that valley upon which the evening was descending and my people Israel, and sinners, and with them he who was dying, he who had died for them. And the men sent by Joseph of Arimathea, who were already approaching, bearing the white shroud. So the poem ends with the burial of Jesus, and all of human history with him. The Romans, the centurion, that mountain, that valley, and sinners, and all of them, the whole earth. And it ends not in agony, but in a mysterious rest, which leaves us as yet uncertain if it will emerge into Easter even though this is suggested. The white shroud is laid over them all. So that poem to me is a poem about the coming into the human narrative of a transfigured hope. And in the final section of the talk, talk I want to ask how is this transfigured hope performed remember I was saying at the beginning that hope is a social practice it's a form of life it's a form of acting as well as a form of thinking and feeling and so if you talk of the transfigured hope which Charles Peggy uh, uh, articulates in the poem, uh, in contrast to the work of Walter Benjamin, though Benjamin acts as a powerful foil to it, you then should say, well, how is transfigured hope performed? I want to say, basically, two things about it. The first practice of hope is prayer. In the sense of participation in the millennia-long experiment in listening to God while looking at the crucified Christ. So prayer is the first performance of transfigured hope. Prayer is a learning school. It's a learning school that we attend together. Peggy has wonderful lines about this. They're not in the ones I was directly quoting. It goes something like this. 
we give each other, we pass to each other from neighbor to neighbor, one after the other, like a relay, the same hope is passed on. So the, the uh, uh, millennia-long tradition of prayer, which is where transformative hope is practiced, is something we do in common with generation after generation. And the horizon of that prayer is never just us, but as the poem has said, it is the centurion and his Romans and that mountain and that valley and my people Israel and sinners. So it's, it's, it's uh, that kind of prayer that we're entering in when we perform transformative hope. The second thing I want to say is that besides prayer, what else do we form? And here you have to say transfigured hope is performed in indeterminate diversity. Each of us writes our own narrative into history under the sign of the Lamb. But general features nonetheless can be noted. And I want to note two, I think. The hope promotes a cluster of other qualities, other virtues, associated virtues. Patience, courage, resilience, perseverance, and humility. So the little child of hope prompts the growth of these other virtues, uh, a whole cluster of them. And again in Piggy's word, this little hope surprises me. How can it be as constant, remain as faithful, as righteous, as pure and invincible, impossible to extinguish? Among the virtues that the little child of hope promotes is to be constantly in search of moral realism. The little child of hope prompts us to resist the excessive optimism fostered by our privileged position in the affluent West. It prompts us to remember that this is a time of emergency, a time of need. Actually, those words of Walter Benjamin that we could turn back into at this stage, Benjamin writes, the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception but the rule. We must attain a conception of history that is in keeping with this insight. A time of uh, emergence. The undermining of the morally corrupting and politically disastrous optimism. I think you can take that phrase a time of emergency in two different directions, and both of them are very important. 
One of them is out into the embodied world of social and ecological crisis. But you can also take that phrase, a time of emergency, back into the narrative of our own lives, which we are still writing. There are barren phases in the story that we have written and are writing that we should be alerted to. And perhaps recalling that the little child of hope says that the meaning of the past of that narrative, our narrative, also lies in the keeping of the present. It is we who can endow it with a definite form, not simply by choosing to read it in a certain way, but by virtue of our actions. And finally, I think I want to say the little child of hope enables humility. It prompts humility. It, 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 it undermines grandiose notions and fantasies. Remember Tony Coote, whom I spoke of at the beginning. He speaks of hope, his limbs wasted, and soon there's no agency at all. And it's, he, he has very little to do when he speaks of hope. And there's something about that sense of um, the humility of our positioning that goes along with the real discovery of our hope. I want to um, perhaps end with a quotation from um, Herbert McCabe, which kind of gets that. We're not optimists for all the reasons we've been saying. We do not present the lovely vision of the world which everyone's expected to fall in love with. We simply have, wherever we are, some small local task to do on the side of justice for the poor. It's the last phrase that I like there so much. We simply have some small work task to do on the side of justice for the poor. And you can add to that the ecological time of emergency, some small local task to do. Uh, hope encourages humility and undermines fantasy. And if you remember Tony Coote's last words, he says, I feel I'm on a train. That metaphor recalls one of the great images, I suppose, in the Christian narrative, homo viator, the traveling person, the person on a journey. That's you and I. We are not the last operators in the great narrative of, of the earth uh, or of history. And we do not know where we're going, actually. 
as Tony Coote does not know where we're setting out on a journey and you set out on a journey with hope nourishing humility resisting the fantasy of optimism radically the morally corrupting fantasy of optimism and saying you and I have some small local task to do on the side of justice for the poor and in this time of emergency. It's perhaps worth remembering um, a very great encyclical by Pope Benedict, uh, which he wrote on hope, and the title of it is Spe Salvi Facti Sumus, We Have Been Saved by Hope. And the idea there is that salvation, by which you would mean something like the human narrative's great wounds healing, is in us when we have hope. But not in its full modality as fact, but only in the modality of hope. But the key thing is the f salvation, the healing of the wound of history is in us. And as I've been suggesting there, prompts each of us differently. But all of us towards the small local task on behalf of justice and of the poor and of the earth. So thank you very much.